tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. It's an exciting day today. We we launch into St. Paul's letter to the Romans, and I'm sure you can guess I have lots of harebrained theories about it. So that said, let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them in the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created. You shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God cast into hell, Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Wow. Well, let's do it. Let's open the big book on the coffee table. So what is that? What? Who? Where? You said that in your Chicago accent. The, the big book on the, the big coffee. book on the coffee table. Yes, I, I do speak fluent South Side. You know, things like. The beauty part. That's that's a Chicagoese phrase for the, the 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 good thing in this arrangement. The beauty part of this is that it's free. Another one. What's a who's your Chinaman? That means who with whom do you have influence in the city council? Who's your Chinaman? What's another good one? The Bodius. I don't know if I talked about the Bodius. I'm sure I've mentioned the Bodius. That is the pejorative dual uh, second person. That's what it is grammatically. In other words, it's 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 dual, two people, and it's, it's second person. Um, but it's pejorative because it's rarely used in a good sense, as in, I want to see the Bodhias in my office now. So your lesson for Chicagoan. But let's forget that. Let us go to the Holy Scriptures, which are not written in Chicagoan. Maybe I should do a Chicagoan translation. Never mind. All right, Luke 11, the 29th chapter to the 32nd verse. While still more people gathered in the crowd, Jesus said to them, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah, and this is a nice segue into the letter of the Romans, is not only the resurrection. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three nights and three days, uh, so will the Son of Man. This is part of the sign of Jonah. But here, the dimension of the sign of Jonah is the universality of the church. Uh, just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the sign. Now, there are people who say, well, there's no archaeological evidence that the Ninevites ever. No, if I say to you, just as Snow White fell asleep and was not awakened until uh, the kiss of, of Prince Charming or whatever. <laughs> There was no Snow White. Well, 
These are. This is a story that is formative of the culture. So those people say clearly Jesus didn't know what he was talking about, and he didn't know that Jonah didn't exist. And besides, maybe Jonah did exist exactly as this story says. Who knows? As I always say, I wasn't there. All I know is that the Ninevites, the Assyrians, are devout worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob today because they are devout Christians. Uh, and they have struggled uh, for centuries and centuries to maintain the faith in the face of great opposition. So, that said, the Queen of the South, well, uh, at the judgment, the Queen of the South will rise. Who is the Queen of the South? The Queen of, of uh, let's see, it was the Queen of Sheba, which we don't quite know where that was, but it seems to have been uh, in Yemen at the southeast tip of uh, or southwest tip, rather, of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and possibly in what is today Somalia and Ethiopia, the northwest or northeast tip of the Horn of Africa. So the Queen of the South, uh, uh, there's something greater than Solomon here. What was greater than Solomon? Well, David and the new David, the new covenant is here. You know, that, that he's greater than the temple. At the judgment, the men of Nineveh will arise with this generation. And they certainly will, as I said, because they are devout. So, you know, the Queen of the South was. You know, the men of Nineveh were. And that said, the sign of, of, uh, of Jonah not only is the resurrection from the dead, but the news of the resurrection. Because within a lifetime after Christ, the gospel was being preached in India and in Spain. It was being preached in Germany and in Ethiopia, it, it, the, the, the speed with which the gospel was preached is breathtaking. Um, so the sign of Jonah is about the Catholicism, the universality of the church, that it wasn't just for uh, the people of, of Israel. It was not simply for Israelites or for Judeans, and I use that word advisedly. And that takes us to the first reading, the letter to the Romans. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> uh, and, and he's called to be, he's set apart for the gospel of God. Which one, Matthew, Mark, or Luke? People ask me that question. The gospel was the sharing of the news of God's love, God's kingdom, and the resurrection of Christ, the, the conquest of death by, 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 by God himself. So, uh, um, we read the gospel about his son descended from David according to the flesh, established as son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. There we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the resurrection from the dead. Through him we've received the grace of apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all Gentiles, among whom are you also who are called to Jesus Christ. To the love of God, to the, all the beloved of God in Rome called to be holy. Now, I don't know that he's saying, he says, for the sake of his name um, among all the Gentiles, among whom you also are. The big, the big thing here is who is the you? Um, are the you, is the you Jews or Gentiles? I think that that's very significant. Um, let me pull this up here just real quickly. Uh, oh, good grief. Once again, my mouse is... Ah, there's my mouse. 
All right. I decided, Father, against the mouse noise. I feel like that would that would gross people out. Uh, yes, yes. The, the voice in my head was going to put a little mouse noise in when I started complaining about my mouse escaping. Well, it might not. Yeah, I know some people are hysterically afraid of mice. But, well, let's look at the Greek text here. So, uh, the, the, he says, among all of the nations... Uh, that 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 he he uh, his apostleship was for the sake of the obedience of faith among all of the nations. Uh, um, uh, let's see here. Where's this? Okay, I gotta jump ahead one verse here. Okay, come on, jump. It's not jumping. Oh well. Good. Ah, there it is. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, among whom you are, uh, you are called, the called of Jesus Christ. And you are called by Jesus Christ. Now, it's very ambiguous who the you is in you, and I would not be surprised if it did refer to the Jews. Now comes my harebrained theory about uh, the, the letter to the Romans. People say that Christianity was established in Rome long before the writing of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, which might have been around 55 A.D. That's, you know, it was in the middle of the 50s. Well, yeah, Christianity had been established in Rome before that uh, in the Jewish community. But we read in Suetonius' Life of the, of the Twelve Caesars, is it the Twelve Caesars? I forget the title. <laughs> the Life of the Caesars by Suetonius. I'm not counting. Uh, that that uh, Emperor Claudius, around 52 A.D., 51, 52 A.D., exiled all of the Jews, all of the Judeans from Rome because of riots over a certain Crestus, and it's spelled in Suetonius, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. Now, Suetonius wrote a generation after this in his Life of the Caesars. Um, Claudius expelled the Jews because they were rioting over Crestus. Now, Crestus was a common name for slaves. It meant handy. You might call your slave handy. Real demeaning name. However, orthography, that is correct spelling, was very loose at this time. And it is more probable that these were riots about Christus, the Messiah, about uh, riots about someone called Christus. This is fascinating because it means that, that the Jews were expelled from Rome, and there has been a community of Jews in Rome since before the time of Christ. And one wonders if the expulsion was complete, but there was an expulsion. This is where St. Paul meets uh, Saints Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth, and they, they shared the, the, um, the task of tent maker, leather worker, and so they worked together, and they were Christians. This, this is, I think, very important because the Christian community, such as it was, ceased to exist in Rome around 52 A.D. Claudius was poisoned by his niece, who happened also to be his wife, who happened to be the mother of Nero from one of her earlier marriages. Eh, Romans, they were not unlike us, confused. But um, Nero 
uh, um, married his 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 best friend's wife. Eventually, he kicked her to death uh, when she was pregnant and complaining about his being at the racetrack, not as a spectator, but as a, a driver, which Romans didn't do. Roman noblemen did not drive chariots in the in the amphitheater. That was something done by slaves or or lower class people. But Papea uh, uh, Sabina, or was it Sabina Papea? I'm getting old. But Papea was his buddy's wife, and he took her from him, married her, and uh, <clears throat> she was very pro-Jewish. She was very interested in Judaism as a religion. And so under her influence, the Jews were slowly allowed to come back to Rome. This is the historical context. So 52 AD, maybe a little earlier, the Jews are exiled from Rome because they're rioting about somebody called Crestus or Christus. They're allowed to come back under Nero because his wife, Papea, was partial to them. And <clears throat> so the community reestablished itself. This is the historical juncture in which the letter to the Romans is written. And I have a theory that Paul, who was a student of Gamaliel, according to his own admission, and he was a Talmudist. He was one of these people who thought Talmudically. Uh, um, remember, the word Talmud means the study, and a Talmud is a disciple. He was a disciple, a Talmud of Gamaliel, and was very schooled in both Greek philosophy and in a Jewish way of thinking. Uh, uh, the the What's a good example of a Talmudic, or I used to call it proto-Talmudic, and Rabbi Levick would say, why are you calling it proto-Talmudic? It's just Talmudic. A Talmudic way of thinking, for instance, a priest-king messiah is not mentioned in the Torah. Priests come from the tribe of Levi. Uh, uh, kings come from the tribe of Judah. So you can't have a priest-king. In the letter to the Hebrews, the author points out that there is a priesthood superior to the priesthood of, of, of Aaron because Aaron, figuratively, was in the loins of Jacob slash Israel, who was in the loins of Isaac, was in the loins of Abraham, when he was ministered to by Melchizedek, the superior ministers to the inferior. Thus, the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Aaron, and he was a priest-king, and it's mentioned in the Torah, so there. That's Talmudic reasoning. It squeezes the meaning out of every single word. Well, Paul was skilled at this, and in the letter of the Romans, we see, I believe, a basis for Greek Christians and and uh, Jewish Christians, Israelite Christians, to get along. Should we be following the law of Moses or shouldn't we? Can we eat shrimp or can't we? Should we be circumcised or not? Paul deals with these in a very Talmudic way, speaking to both Greek and Jew. And thus, I maintain that Paul, in his letter to the Romans, is writing the the what's the word, the foundational document of the Roman church. He establishes the church in Rome in a unique way. And at this point, I suspect that Peter comes to, to join in that work of converting the largest city and the most important city in the empire to the faith of Christ. Paul establishes a philosophical and a, a legal, in the sense of Jewish Talmudic legality, and a legal basis for a relationship between Jews and the nations. That's what Gentile means, the, uh, the, the, the nations. 
And thus doing, he establishes that about which we read in the gospel today, he establishes a universal, that is a Catholic church. This is not incidental. Catholicism is not incidental to the gospel. It is established as a biblical principle that we are a universal church. We're not, we're not just one ethnicity. You, you'll find so many churches like Swedish Lutheran. That's a, I, I really, or, 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 or uh, 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 Serbian Orthodox, not to, they're wonderful Christians. Don't, I'm not trying to impugn their, their faith, but the identification of a, of, of a religion with an ethnicity is not part of Catholicism. You know, uh, people get so upset about the the medieval papacy, and there were lots of things wrong with the medieval papacy and the Renaissance papacy. I mean, these these popes who maintained armies, they were trying to maintain the independence of the papacy, that it wasn't a government organization. And we're facing the same thing now, trying to defend our, our Catholicism against national churches like the, the Chinese Patriotic Church. Um <clears throat> you know, or, or shall we say at the American Catholic Church. I'm not an American Catholic. I'm a Catholic in America. I don't believe in the American Catholic Church. I believe in the Catholic Church in America. And this idea of, of uh, a form of Catholicism tailor-made to my ethnicity, I don't think it's part of the gospel. Of course, we use the language of the people and the language and the culture of the people to, to bring people to an understanding of the faith of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. When culture is the servant of faith, when faith becomes the servant of culture, you've lost it. And the letter to the Romans, I really believe, establishes a, a legal basis for a church that is universal. That seems to be, what well, I think, what St. Paul is doing. So uh, that's my harebrained theory. Some of it I have, of course, stolen from real scholars, but some of it I, <laughs> is totally mine and harebrained. So you should take it with... A grain of salt. But I still think I'm right. All right, that said, 888-914. We'll open the phones, 888-914-9149. Let me do that again. 888-914-9149. Call in early. Call in often. Today, we'd like to thank Steve, who is listening in Wisconsin, for donating his 1981 Kawasaki motorcycle. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts of life. End over end, neither left nor to right. Straight through the heart of them righteous uprights. Drop kick me Jesus to the goalpost. A classic. Drop kick me Jesus through the goalpost. One does occasionally feel that one is getting a kick from the Almighty, but um where were we? All right. Oh, before I jump into into letters, just I, I want to reiterate what, what you heard during the, the break that that we celebrate the holy souls in a big way here at Relevant Radio. And uh, you can join us in prayer, uh, and you can submit up to 20 names of your departed loved ones at relevantradio.com slash souls. That's relevantradio.com slash souls. 
And this, this is a great practice to pray, to pray for those who've gone before us. We stand together. I have met so many people who have died and lived tell about it, who talk about hearing the prayers of their loved ones uh, um, as, as they, as they uh, um, stand before the throne of God. I, I've heard some amazing stories about that. So go to relevantradio.com slash souls and you'll get it explained and uh, you can participate in the novena uh, uh, for the holy souls uh, to help you enter more deeply into prayer. And, uh, you know, we got the Daily Mass. we got the Family Rosary across America. It's a great time of prayer. All right. That said, let us go to letters. Okay, hold on again. I got the mouse. I can click that. Okay, this is from <clears throat> Marie. During the month of the Rosary. Oh, I, I got one on another line. Well, let me finish this one. <laughs> I could be the poster child for attention deficit disorder, I think. During the month of the rosary, I began doing the 54-day rosary novena. I read that Sister Lucia explained that one can do the rosary while rocking their child to sleep. I find myself doing this as well. I was wondering, is it appropriate to do the rosary while taking a walk or doing household chores? This, I got to tell the joke. I've told it before and will tell it many times more. This guy asks a Jesuit, a Jesuit priest, Father, is it all right uh, to smoke while you're saying the rosary? And the Jesuit says, oh, I don't think so. And he asked, is it all right to, to pray the rosary while you smoke? Why, of course it's all right, my son. You should pray always. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty funny, too. Oh, those Jesuits, they're so funny. Moving along. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Uh, moving along here. <laughs> I was educated by Jesuits. Talk about humor. Um, the uh, um, Yes, I, I think that it is fine to say the rosary uh, while you are, you know, you wouldn't say the rosary while you're watching TV. But when you're, you're performing the necessary tasks of life, I don't think it's a problem to say the rosary. Um, I hope it's not, because I often do. You mentioned taking a walk or household chores. Taking a walk is a wonderful time to say the rosary. Uh, uh, you can even listen to the breviary online. And uh, um, it's, it's, it's taking a walk is a good time to pray. What else are you doing? And, uh, you know, I would, I would say while you're doing something like uh, watching TV, that's not the time to say the rosary. But when you're, you know, most of what the work we do is an expression of the love we have for the people who live in our care. So I wouldn't say it's a problem. Now, there's a second part to this question that Marie asks. I've noticed some people saying the rosary during Mass. Is that appropriate? Do you know of any history or reasons behind that? Um, I agree with you, Marie. I don't think it is appropriate to say the rosary during Mass. Um, the way that that developed and became a fairly common custom was when the Mass was in Latin and people who were not literate uh, didn't have missiles, couldn't follow along with the Mass, they would pray the rosary during Mass. I, that, I believe, is where it came from, and um, that would have been true uh, even in my youth, that there would be people, especially from poorer countries who might have emigrated to the States, who were not literate. And they, they, liturgical books in their native language were not available for them. Mass was going on in Latin. But now Mass is usually in English, and... Uh, you can listen to what's being said in order to follow along. So I would I would be opposed uh, in general, not necessarily universally, but in general, to saying the rosary at Mass uh, because 
you should be participating in mass. But while you're doing chores, you know, your mind is pretty much unengaged. <laughs> At least mine is. Of course, my mind is unengaged when I'm doing the show sometimes. All right, moving along. This is from Roman and uh, uh, Roman. I, I knew so many people when I lived on the, on the northwest side uh, named Roman. It's a very beloved Polish name. Uh, so, Roman, uh, I was intrigued by your program several weeks ago when you discussed love as a transaction. I don't know that I used that word, but yeah, okay. The Bible passage was about the bride and the bridegroom. Those listening to the story understood it as a transaction where the dowry is exchanged for the bride. Let me talk about the dowries. It was not a purchase price for the bride. In, uh, in For instance, in Roman culture, it wasn't. Now, in some cultures, it is exactly that, a purchase price. Uh, but... Um, you know, the, the, the bride's father gets the dowry. But this is quite different in the West, in, in the context of the Romans and in the context of, uh, well, up to my youth, <laughs> there's still cultures that, that use the dowry. It was kind of an insurance program for the bride. It was the bride's money given into the care of her husband. And if the marriage failed, that dowry had to be repaid to the bride. And so a good dowry was, was, was a sort of means of, of, um, uh, means of protection for the bride and the security of the marriage. Now, what I was talking about was the idea, not so much of a dowry in a transaction, uh, but the idea that, uh, that a sacrament a covenant is I give you myself that you might give me yourself. A contract is I give you that you might give me. When the business is at hand is done, when the money or the services are exchanged, the relationship is over. In a covenant, I've given you myself, you've given me yourself. The only thing that can end the covenant relationship is death. Um, that That physical intimacy is part of the covenant of marriage, and it's respected and honored and glorified. It's sacramental. It's a source of grace. That very physical intimacy in marriage is a source of grace. There are other <laughs> relationships that are contractual that have to do with physical intimacy. And here I speak of one of the older professions of humanity that I will not go into on a family show. But those are contractual, and we do not respect them. Modern marriage is contractual. It can end. Whereas sacramental covenantal marriage cannot end while both covenanters are alive. So I think that's important to understand. So that was what I was driving at, Roman. Well, it got me thinking, says Roman, uh, uh, that it is, if that is not similar to God's love in the Bible, I understand God's love is agape, so always love us. But in order for us to feel the true power of God, we have to reciprocate by following his will. That, in a sense, makes it kind of a transaction. Yes, I think I think you've got a point there that—, that um, that we we have to respond to God. You know, there's a wonderful verse in uh, to me that explains the problem of grace. If we have the problem of grace, well, how can I merit anything as a, as a human being? Uh, uh, you know, if it's all God's grace, the the reformers said that God's grace was irresistible. That was one of uh, Calvin's uh, uh, points uh, that grace was irresistible. That if God had called you, you didn't have the power to resist. And you do. God gives you. God lowers himself and uh, gives you the power to resist him. 
And the phrase I look at is at the very first chapter of the Gospel of John. He gave them karin antikaritos, which literally means grace against grace. We would say, I think, in English, grace upon grace. In other words, God gives me a grace. He calls me. And if I say, nah, well, that's the end of that. He gives me a grace. He calls me and I say, yes, Lord. And then he gives me a greater grace to which I say, yes, Lord, to which he gives me a greater grace to which hopefully I will say, yes, Lord. In other words, by accepting his grace and acting upon that gift, I grow in grace, that it becomes God's free gift to which I freely respond. So there's both free will and grace as salvation by grace. And I participate in my own salvation by accepting that grace. It's not an either or, it's a both hand. I think we'll see that as we read St. Paul's letter to the Romans. So um, uh, this is, uh, this is, I think, you know, that exchange of the dowry. I think it, it is kind of a poetic way to look at that. So interesting letter, Roman. Thank you very much. Okay, let me see. Um, <clears throat> plenty of lines. Oh, there are plenty of lines open at 888-914-9149. Okay. All right. This is from, uh, uh, it's a little long. It's from Betsy uh, about when I talked about persistence in prayer. Uh, she supports the local pregnancy center. It's excellent. The Christian uh, the director is a devout Christian. Um, <clears throat> uh, I was hesitant during COVID to go to the office, so I volunteered to be a prayer warrior. And uh, along the way, the director became aware that I, when I pray, I'm just praying the names. I sensed that she was critical of this. When I last asked for an update, she sent especially for me just a list of names, since in her words, several of our prayer warriors pray for, as I love that phrase, the prayer warrior. I had a friend who called it prayer warrior. Uh, <clears throat> pray for special intentions for the clients, and we'll need to expand information. Since your practice, let me to pray by name. Initially, I tried to explain to her that my personal prayer list is about 400 names. I'm lucky to get through these. I'm... <clears throat> I'm Orthodox, and this is a very Orthodox practice, and I think it's Catholic too. I, I, you know, the rabbis say that God maintains everything in existence by speaking its name. In other words, I have a name known to God alone, which I will not know until I stand before the throne of God, and God sustains me in existence by continually speaking my name. Names are very powerful, and I'm agreeing with you, Betsy, that... Um, <clears throat> To mention someone's name before the Lord, I think, is a very beautiful way to pray. Uh, you know, you you can pray their prayer intentions, uh, you can read them, but the whole point of it is, I'm I'm bringing them up before God, and I think that that works because there's power in a name. Uh, um, it, it's a very symbolic thing, and. God sustains us in, in existence by continually speaking our names. I'm not God. I cannot constantly speak the name. I cannot speak someone's name out of time, but in time I can speak it. And I think that's just fine, Betsy. Um, so um, you do what the Lord has led you to do. And uh, if someone else is led to pray in another way, follow that leading. But Betsy... 
keep going, going for it. And you're right. It is a very Orthodox thing to do, and it is also a very uh, Roman Catholic thing to do. Well, all right, that said, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with our word of the day, and uh, we will um, uh, open the— well, the phones are open at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. We do have quite a few phones open, so do call in and try to stump the Reverend Know-It-All, something much easier to do than you would think. Father Simon says. More information than you actually needed, but hey, fun. On Relevant Radio. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester. An Illinois Life Insurance Society not available in all states. Dust on the Bible, dust on the Holy Word. Get that dust off the Bible. Now, this is kind of funny because we talk about Catholicism, salvation by works, and Protestant salvation by grace. Get the dust off the Bible and redeem your soul. You can't redeem your soul, only Jesus can do that. That's what we Catholics think. But you can say yes to him. All right, let's move along here and go to the word of the day. The word of the day is gospel. Uh, uh, Gospel comes from Godspiel, which is an old Germanic-English word for the good news. And they translate the Evangelion as good news, but it's a lot more complicated than that. You heard me first. You heard it first, complicated. The, the word Evangelion was a very specific thing in the Greek world. Now, in the text today, we hear the gospel of God. Oh, the gospel. I'd like to read that. Uh, I've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, but I haven't read the gospel of God. Oy. Let us remember that Paul is a slave, a doulos, a slave, somebody you can buy in the marketplace. And he is an apostle, which, of course, is a Greek word for delegated, authoritative missionary, not just somebody who says, I'm going to be a missionary. No, God has made me a missionary. I'm on a mission from God as in the Blues Brothers. I'm on a mission from God. The uh, Don't blaspheme, don't you blaspheme. It's a, uh, it's a movie uh, I don't know that I can recommend. Is it recommendable? I, I don't know. Uh, I, it's been a while since I've seen it. Older and more sensitive viewers who have a sense of humor. All right, moving along. Uh, uh, so uh, he's set apart, which is an interesting word. He's set apart for the gospel of God. Now, the Evangelion of God. Now, what, what does that mean? Evangelion means a royal proclamation. Uh, it's, it's, it's not just, um, uh, it's not just uh, something that, that well, I, I, I like and want to be part of. It's, uh, it's the royal proclamation. And a herald would come. Oh, where's my mouse? Once again, I've lost. Ah, there it is. Uh, a herald would come into town and say, "Oh yes, oh yes, that the king has defeated his enemies. Good news." That would be a royal proclamation. Uh, um, it, it wasn't just, "Hey, I got. It. I heard a great story." It wasn't that. So this is the royal proclamation of God. 
It's not just, uh, once again, my mouse has fled. Come on, mouse. There it is. Oh, ah, there it is. I found it. Okay. Um, where are we here? Let me go back to the, you know, the mouse is crazy making. That's Good it. grief. Uh, called to be an apostle and set apart uh, for, for uh, the gospel of God. This is an interesting word because I have another question <laughs> coming up about about yesterday's gospel, but but uh, uh, the word here, the word is the word in here. I think it is obedience of faith among all. Okay, Karen, allowing. I can't find the word I was looking for. Well, that's a theory that didn't work out. Uh, uh, maybe it's in the text beforehand. Hold on, the verse before. Let me click that. This is what radio guys call lousy air. No, I can't quite find the word I'm looking for, so I won't talk about it. All right, let's move along here. But uh, the the gospel isn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the only one that talks about being a gospel is Mark, the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the only one that uses the word gospel in its text. Uh, so what do you mean they're not gospels? They're gospels. The Holy Spirit uses them as pro- proclamations of of, of royal proclamations of the good news. But understand that the gospel itself, this proclamation of good news, was an oral thing. It was announced verbally, orally. And, and what we have written down, uh, I think, were intended by their authors to make certain points from this proclamation of Christ. But So we shouldn't call them gospels. Call them gospels. Don't worry about it. All right. I don't know that that informs anyone of anything. But that said, we're going to go to phone calls. Why don't you ask me a little easy question? Will you answer it? A tiny yeah, one. A tiny one. Michael, have you got a tiny question here? What can I do for you? Yes, hi, Father. Uh, I enjoy your show. I appreciate your help with my question. Well, thank you. When we say that, when we're saying that uh, come Holy Spirit prayer and the part where it says um, come Holy Spirit and you, sh- and you will renew the face of the earth, um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how that would, if, if that has any correlation with embodied angels or the Holy Spirit becoming embodied. You know how like angels visit. Eh, I, I don't know. the The Holy Spirit more than visits; he's moved in. But what this really refers to is the first chapter of Genesis. Genesis, the the first, the first, uh, the second, first chapter, second verse. Uh, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth. The, the word, the word "face" in Hebrew is a very interesting word. Uh, it, uh, pne is the, is it the word pne? Uh, it means face. Uh, it's funny. You talk about a cute baby and use it to shine upon him, which means a cute, a cute face. Uh, um, and it also means the presence. They had the bread of the presence in the in the in the temple, and that was the that was the the word penna is used for that. So the spirit hovered. There was uh, the earth was formless and void, and darkness uh, covered was now over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this idea of come Holy Spirit, renew the face of the earth. In other words, we're asking for the Holy Spirit to come and create a new world for us, the world of, of uh, that belongs to God. So that's the, that verse in the prayer 
Uh, come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kill them. The, uh, what is it? No, no. What is it? <laughs> what have I got here? I'm forgetting the prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, renew the face of the earth. Uh, uh, renew the hearts of thy faithful. Or we're there. Holy renew the, fa- the The phrase "renew the face of the earth." Oh, Michael, I thought you were going to give me an easy question, Michael. The the face of the earth refers to this text in in uh, Genesis. But, you know, the Holy Spirit, I, I don't think outside of, of the instances of Scripture, ever, ever appears in a bodily form. In fact, it is the tongues of fire. Remember, that says he appeared as, as a dove. He wasn't a dove. He appeared as a dove. Uh, uh, that was a symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence at the baptism of Jesus. And he was as if flames, uh, tongues of fire over the apostles. Those are the only two well, times that I can think of the Holy Spirit being in any way embodied. What about what about when Jesus says about um, sending the Advocate or the Paraclete or the Comforter, mm-hmm. and then where it says later in the prayer it says, "And so we may evermore rejoice in His comfort." Yeah, yeah, the, but does it, doesn't necessarily mean embodied? it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is a body. I mean. No. Everything is him or his or hers or its in, in in uh, the scripture, and uh, its is not never personal. So, you know, ancient languages had to have gender, and uh, ours don't. Uh, the Holy Spirit is neither male nor female. Uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, I really don't think oh. ever like the Holy Spirit's never going to appear to you as say a large uh-huh. a large. Uh, Fig so tree. The part where, the part about his comfort, rejoicing in his. Comfort oh, he can comfort you. I mean, I I'm comforted when I talk to someone I I love on the telephone. I don't see their face or their body, but I'm comforted by them. You know, you know that 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 uh, the the and actually that word comfort means literally to strengthen. Uh, so, no, it's just I. There's no no incident in scripture, even out of scripture, that I can think of the Holy Spirit. Appearing as a a a visible being, um, maybe you know I haven't seen everything, but so I don't know. I've, I may be wrong about this, but but the the closest one comes is the tongues as if of fire, and uh, as a, as a dove. So that's that's it. Holy Spirit's not a bird. So hope that helps a little. And and uh, it's it's a good question. It's an interesting question. I'm going to have to ponder. So thanks for calling in, Michael. God bless. Let's go to Mary from San Antonio. Are you with us, Mary? I am, Father, and thank you for taking my call. Um, yesterday, I was uh, going over the readings before I went to Mass, and the gospel uh, about the wedding guest that was mm-hmm. cast out always kind of bothered me because I thought, well, what if he didn't have the money or whatever reason didn't have it? Well, I was listening to a reflection before I went to Mass on that gospel, and they said that at that time, the host of the banquet provided wedding garments. And so if the man didn't have one on, it was because he refused it. I've never heard anything like that before in the, about this gospel. And do you know anything about that? I do. I have often heard that, and there's no. And I looked it up, and there is no uh, verifiable ancient source that says that's true. And it's exactly uh. our scruple about that was not nice. That was mean. Well, in the normal course of events, uh, um, 
people had a wedding garment. They, they could at least wash the garments they had. And the wedding garment was not, uh, you know, you know I, my attitude to parables is, I think you probably have heard me say this, a lot of them are funny stories. We try to milk every little word in the parable. For instance, the one that makes the people crazy uh, most is the unjust steward who takes his, uh, you know, he's about to be dismissed because he's been stealing from the master. And uh, he takes his uh, master's debtor's bills and writes them, cuts them in half, and the master compliments him for being shrewd. Um, what well, does that mean? We should be cheating and stealing? It's a funny story. You look at the, the huge quantities of grain and oil. Uh, you owe my master a zillion barrels of oil. Make it half a zillion. You know, it's, it's a humorous story. And we try to, you know, use it to fine-tune it. We can do that to this story of the wedding garment. You know, the, 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 the comment isn't about... Uh, um, uh, um, the comment isn't about uh, uh, worthiness and unworthiness. It's a it's a story about about a guy who refuses to clean up for a wedding. And the interesting word: some are called and uh, few are chosen. the The word "call" is interestingly the same word for church. It's it's uh, kalo, which is call in Greek. It's cognate to the English word "call," and the church is the ecclesia, those who are called out. The word for chosen is eklektoi, which means hand-picked. And what's going on here is that this guy, he refused to it's, he refused to respond to the grace of repentance. I think that's what the story is really about, that God called him, and he said, yeah, so God called me. Take me as I am. Uh, um, well, God does take us as we are, and he cleans us up. So, but when you refuse to get cleaned up for it, and I, I don't know any priest who doesn't think, yeah, people come to church and you're lucky if they if they're wearing a dirty sweatsuit that doesn't have holes in it. Um, this is just wrong. We 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 refuse to clean up for the liturgy, and I'm sure a lot of priests banged that drum yesterday. But the general thing I think is this is somebody who got the call of God and refused to respond to it in an appropriate way. You know, take me as I am. You made me this way, and uh, now you can get cleaned up. Does that help a little? It does, and I appreciate it very much. Uh, I had asked the deacon if he'd ever heard this after Mass, and uh, he said no, and he was going to have to look it up. And it was a, it's a reflection that I listen to every morning. I have a series of prayers mm -hmm. and readings that I do first thing, and uh, it just kind of threw me off guard. But you have clarified it, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Father, and have a good rest of your day. Well, thank you. Thank you. The same to you. And again, I, I have heard that story. I heard it when I was a little kid because nobody wants to, to say this, this king was a mean king, and he wasn't. He was just doing what was right and normal. Um, I, I've never found an ancient source that says, oh, yes, that the king gave out wedding garments. I would be amazed if the king gave out wedding garments because cloth was incredibly expensive. And a yes, king might, I heard you say that. Yes, a king might give a garment to a favored courtier, but some schlub who comes in to a wedding, I don't think so. All right, well, thanks for calling in. Let us now go to uh, Sue, our are you? Are we using uh, Sue? What can I do for you? Hi, Father. Yes. Question is that I've noticed this at least twice, and when the priest is elevating the host at the consecration, uh, they only used one hand, 
And I thought that was not, I didn't know if they should only use one hand. One priest used his left hand on the chalice and just one hand. And one priest held it up for like split second, like one, two, three, back down. And some have bells and some don't have bells. But I just wonder about the two hands mainly. And then, you know, what about that? Well, it always looks ridiculous to me, like, like uh, especially with the chalice, like it's like a toast. Here you go. Cheers, God. It looks, it's, no, I was taught that you used two hands. Dear voice in my head, do you know if there's a rubric about that? I think, I think there's a rubric on two hands, isn't there? I don't know. Well, uh, let me, let me click away on the computer. Rubrics, two hands. Okay, we'll get this. Okay, hit the button. Okay, I hit the button already. Both hands at elevation of host. All right. Okay, the general instruction of the Roman Missal does not give a detailed description of this rite, nor do liturgical norms and rubrics. In the formulas that follow, the word of the Lord should be pronounced clearly. The priest takes bread and holding it slightly raised above the altar continues. He bows lightly and says, he shows the consecrated host to the people and places it again on the pattern. He takes the chalice and holding it slightly raises it. Let's see here. However, uh, if we limit ourselves to a strict minimalist interpretation of rubrics, we would have to say there's no strict legal requirement to hold both hands. However, the liturgical norms of the ordinary rite, even though they no longer describe each gesture, tend to presume continuity and longstanding practice. Thus, there is every reason to assume that when saying simply that the priest takes the bread, the legislator presumes he will do so with both hands. Um, uh, you know, that would be an exception would be when the priest is physically impeded, such as he has only one hand. Uh, so uh, this was the longstanding tradition of the church. And because it has not been abrogated, it is still uh, in effect. However, you know, it just makes me crazy when priests try to dramatize the liturgy in a way that, that they think is magical and, and interesting and dramatic and it really just points to them being cute. I cannot stand it when priests decide to be cute. I just watched a, a, a sermon in which a priest played the guitar and sang a song about Winnie the Pooh. Just when you think it's safe to go back into the sanctuary. Did you hear the Winnie the Pooh? Uh, I don't know. I'm looking up with the voice in my head here across the, across the glass. And uh, yeah, it's just, you know, Father, don't be cute. Do do what doesn't call attention to you and your your magical ability to interpret something. That's my thought on it, Sue. Does that help a little? I guess so, Father. So to each their own, it sounds like. Well, not really. The, what the, the text that I read points out that the liturgical practice for time immemorial was both hands. And to change that simply because it's not mentioned in the general instruction of the the Roman Missal, well, that isn't really a, a legitimate reason to do it. However, try to argue that with a priest who's decided he's going to be cute. All right. I hear music in my head. And let me tell you, Drew is impressive, but he's not cute. <laughs> <laughs> 